You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right, so today we are looking at Colossians 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. I'm really focus on the first couple of verses there in verse 24. You'll see in our series, I know you can't really read that from where you are, you'll see some of the images. Um, we're kind of in that ball and chain there, that shackle there, his chains. You'll see that right after the sheep. Uh, it says Paul's ministry to the church. That's kind of where we are in the series. Each image kind of has drawn from uh, a, a Renaissance art and a theme to kind of represent some of what's happening. Some of the images kind of you may not understand it as much, but we'll get there when we get there. But uh, Paul's speaking about you know, his ministry to the church and how he is uh, really in, a, in chains suffering for them. And uh, we'll talk through that. But he, he, this is where we're at in the series. We've still got a ways to go. Uh, but we, it, it's a beautiful passage, beautiful book. And so we're going to begin reading in Colossians 1 verse 24. And, and then I'll have a little bit of an opening illustration and we'll jump into it. Colossians 1 verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings <clears throat> for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister. Samiras might even say a servant, become, became a servant. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship or commissioning call from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26 says the mystery hidden for ages the gener- and generations but now revealed to his saints. To these God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, this is the glory of the mystery, this is the riches of the mystery, what is it? He says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, or Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, I struggling, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter two, verse one continues this idea. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Today's message is around this topic of Christ, uh, of Paul's ministry to the church. Uh, The title is uh, A Job Description of a Christian Minister. It'll be a little bit of a different message in the sense that today I'm going to be speaking about, um, in one way, shape, or form, my job (laughs) and the job of the elders. So the elders and myself, we have a particular passage here of Scripture that Paul, I think, in many ways is laying out an example for us as 
leaders of the church. I would even say deacons and elders and pastors. We, we are um, really, this passage speaks directly to us. But those of you who are members of a church, you're attenders of this church, is, this is for you as well. I don't want you to kind of say, well, I'm not a pastor, and so this isn't for me. For in fact, Paul speaks with general enough terms that he's speaking about ministering in the gospel, the job description of a Christian minister or a Christian servant, for we are all servants of the church and we all serve in our own way and we're all called to proclaim God's word in one way, shape, or form. But in particular, I think it'll also allow you to have a sense of what is uh, a job description of a pastor or an elder? What is their job? Um, in fact, uh, this week there was a um, landscaper, last week I think it was, there was a landscaper that came into the church. Uh, we getting him coffee or something. They were working outside and he was really awesome. He just came in, he leaned against the wall and he said, so what is it you guys do here? <laughs> and it was awesome because it was just like so, so frank. And I was like, well, good, good question. What is it we do here, right, at church? Yeah, is it? Really good question, what is it that you do? What is it, I'll get it sometimes. So sometimes people who don't like aren't around church are like, so you're a pastor and what do you do all day? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, well, where do you want to start? You know, I work one day a week and it's awesome. No, right, so um, this job description and then I found online some really things that helped me, I, at least I thought they were funny. Um, and they are, maybe you've seen them, you've heard, uh, you know, describe, um, describe your job poorly in one sentence. Have you, have you seen those things? Can you describe what you do for work as poorly as you can, but only using one sentence? Let me give you examples. Uh, one of them was uh, this person's job says, I take numbers on pieces of paper, I rearrange them, and put them on different pieces of paper. This is the job of a tax accountant, right? Um, this job was, uh, I read things that don't matter, uh, then I write papers saying they do matter for points that don't matter in order to get a job doing something completely unrelated. It's the job of a college student, right? Um, this one was, I show you innovative ways to burn money in a spirit of patriotism. This is a fireworks store manager, you know, Atlas, right? Um, this one, I, uh, the, I go to strange people's houses and take their money. This is a pizza delivery boy. <laughs> uh, this one maybe hits home for some of you. I help people spend far more than they estimated. That's uh, a building inspector. <laughs> um, sorry, I know. If any of you are in here, please don't. These are funny. There's not true, right? This one, I, I res resonate, right? The, you've maybe seen this. I stand on a field and I get yelled at for hours. There's a baseball umpire, okay? Um, it's like, why do you do, who wants that job, right? But some people enjoy it. Um, this one had me laughing, I, I don't know, this is, I arrive after the battle's taken place and I bayonet all the wounded. That is an auditor, okay? Um, and then for me, I didn't find one, they didn't have a pastor on there, uh, but I was trying to come up with it, I was like, I read old books and I tell people about a guy who died and who's actually alive, you know? Um, or one, Tony Evans always says his job, basically summarized, he says, he carries people, he marries people and he buries people. There's the job of a pastor, right? So what is this job description of a pastor? What is it that I actually do? What is it that a Christian minister is called to do? Sometimes, yeah, we can be silly and funny about it, but there, there is also a certain serious element about the spiritual shepherding of souls and, and that this 
Christian ministry, leadership in a church, even being involved in a church and dedicating your life and giving as many of you do outside of the traditional form of leadership. So many of you are invested in the congregation and others' lives and you're counseling and you're maybe a Stephen minister, you're working in people's lives. You're really caring for the souls of people. This is not something to sign up for lightly. I thought of the illustration, maybe you're familiar with the famous Sir Ernest Shackleton. Yes, Sir Ernest Shackleton, he's famous for leading those expeditions to Antarctica, perilous journeys. Maybe you're familiar with the ad that he posted in a newspaper as he was looking in England at the time, looking for people who would join his crew to get on a ship and risk their lives to go to the end of the world, you could say. Like, who would sign up for a journey like that, right? How would you put a job description ad in the paper for a journey like that? Well, here's his simple ad in the paper for Sir Ernest Shackleton's perilous Antarctic expedition. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the South Pole. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. There's the job description. You're saying, who signs up for that? The funny thing is, history tells us that dozens and dozens and dozens of people signed up. They had too many people that wanted to come on this extreme journey, a journey of value and meaning, of purpose, of need, of extreme danger. We are inside of us. Some of us are more drawn to danger than others. Some of you willingly drive cars and smash them into each other like you did yesterday, I heard. Right? You're, you're lurking, you're hungering for the danger. I think sometimes we forget the true weight of what's going on in church. We come, yes, we have fun, but there is certain actual spiritual warfare that occurs that we wage light and dark. We're talking about human souls. And so there is a certain level of you sign up for this, you better get ready. You better get ready for battle. Put on the whole armor of God, right? And so today, this job description of a Christian minister, a pastor, you could say an elder, you could say a servant of the gospel, whatever you kind of want to fill in there, Paul is giving us his job description of what he is doing for the Colossian people. Again, he probably hasn't met most of the people that are reading this letter. And by way of introduction, literally all of chapter one is a giant introduction. He hasn't even gotten into the meat of it. So you think, I have long introductions. Okay, Paul's got an entire chapter of Colossians, only four chapters of this book, and he has an entire chapter that's all by way of introduction. And here he gets into the meat of who he is, what he's been called by God to do, and why that's important for the Colossian church to understand that he loves them, he cares for them, he's struggling for them, he's praying for them, he's sacrificing his life, he's in chains right now in Rome, most likely suffering on their behalf. And so as a, as a kind of founding father there, this minister and a steward, uh, this being person who's commissioned by God, he gives us kind of this job description. We're gonna be teasing that out today. And so I have six points for you today. Um, We're not gonna spend a ton of time on every single one, but we'll look at some more than others. But the job description that I've drawn from this um, is a sense here in these six points that number one, that a Christian minister Someone who is serving the church and serving God and called by him is someone who is willing to suffer for others. They have a sense of calling to proclaim the word, the whole counsel of God, not just their hobby horses. We'll get into that. Number three is 
a passion to preach. He says in verse 28 that he desires to warn and teach them or counsel and teach them. Number four is they have a long-term goal-oriented desire to mature the body. Long-term goal-oriented. They're not just this flash in the pan, microwave. They're looking to crockpot the, the, the teaching in the church. Um, and then at the end, if you can kind of summarize it in one word, I was trying to, this, this person, this job description, they, they need to be Christ-powered, right? Christ-powered spirit-empowered, whatever you want to say, but in particular, uh, Paul uses Christ so much in this passage, I had to land there. He's Christ-powered, all right? So, so those six points, there could be others, but that's what we have time for today, I believe. The first one is found in verse 24, right at the beginning, uh, Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. So number one, he's willing to suffer for others. As a leader, as a church, as someone who is driving these, Paul was willing to suffer for the church, willing to suffer not for his own sake, but for others. And I guess you could say Paul is saying, look, suffering comes with the territory. It's part of the job description. That is exactly what Sir Ernest Shackleton was gonna say. You're gonna sign up for my expedition to the Antarctic. Look, people, you are going to endure suffering. Long days, long nights, it's gonna be cold and you might die, okay? It's like, perfect, there we go. Sign up to be a Christian minister for the gospel. Whoa. I rejoice in my suffering, though, Paul says. He's not like, oh, ho, hum, woe is me. I gotta suffer, gotta go do it. No, he's, I rejoice. What? It's kind of crazy, right? I rejoice in my suffering. Suffering comes with the territory, and yet it's something that he finds joy in. It comes with the territory, and I think there are so many ways that I think sometimes we forget to remind ourselves that there are aspects and periods of life that are hard, right? We, we walk through with each other, even the last month or two, for so many of us. Some of us are still going through those things, right? We're, where we experience hardship and suffering. And there's a sense that if I, at, on church on Sunday, if I draw you with saying that it's always gonna be easy and everything's gonna be a breeze and you're always gonna be victorious over everything that's going on, you'll never have any suffering or hardship in your life. And if I draw that to you and then all of a sudden real life hits you in the face, and you're like, Pastor, you weren't honest with me. You made, a, made, it, made it sound a little bit more rosy than, than I really thought it was, right? And, but I hope you don't, you don't get the sense that here. We're not here trying to kind of create some, manufacture something for you. That, that if I can just trick you into faith, you know, and get you to believe that, you know, it's always going to be easy from here, you know, then I'll get you in the door and then, aha, I've got you, you know. But then you're just going to leave the next day when something difficult happens, right? And so the fact is, it's not an admittance that struggling doesn't happen here. The suffering isn't it's something of life, but the, even Val talked about it, the suffering and the hardship of things that we go through. And yet, what's so cool about church is there's so much hope and, and there's joy even in the midst of suffering. And this is a great theme that Paul gives over and over. James 1, he says, count it all joy, doesn't he? James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he goes on. First Peter 4, 12. Beloved, don't be surprised, he says. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange was happening to you. That's not strange. That's called life. It's gonna happen. But you know what? Don't, don't be surprised. But he says what? Rejoice. I, I didn't, Val, I didn't know you. I didn't talk to you about this earlier, but you were saying the same thing. Like, rejoice. Say, tell Jesus, my Jesus, I love you. Can we bless him even in the middle of the storm? So he says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also rejoice in and be glad when his glory is revealed. Wow, he says, I rejoice 
and I share in the sufferings of Christ. So look at verse 24 in Colossians 1. He says this phrase that is very confusing and I was wrestling it over all week and I still have trouble figuring out what exactly Paul is saying. Uh, I was comforted to know that many other commentators were, were struggling with it as well. But it is a phrase that I'm first on first read, you might be like, wait, what in the world is he saying? He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Is Paul saying that Christ's affliction or his uh, punishment that he paid on the cross was incomplete or that uh, Christ is lacking in the affliction that he paid, so I've got to pay more of it for my own? You know, is that what he's saying? And certainly not, certainly not. Paul is, Paul is not suggesting that Christ's suffering was deficient. He's not saying that the it was finished on the cross is deficient, and now we have to pay the rest of the debt we owe. Now this is, Jesus paid the price in full. His suffering on the cross was sufficient. That is, that is true doctrine and teaching. But Paul is saying that even in a strange way, I think Paul sometimes uses phrases that are like almost getting you to think on, on purpose here. But he views himself as someone who is uh, kind of heading the group. He is leading the group and he is absorbing suffering on their behalf so that the young Colossian church doesn't have to endure what he's going through. All the pattern, the ethic of Jesus Christ, he's following what Jesus did, that Jesus you know, was our substitute, right? That Jesus took on sin. He laid down his life for his beloved, the church, right? And so Paul, in a way, is following that imi- and imitating that behavior. That Paul is viewing himself as a founder, really, of this, uh, an apostle leading the charge. And so N.T. Wright gives some sense here. He says, Paul, therefore, applies to himself the same pattern of suffering on behalf of others that was worked out on the cross. He does not think thereby to save the Colossians from their sin and its consequences. That work is already done. But that he may perhaps save them from some present suffering. And I like this phrase, by drawing the enemy's fire on himself, he may allow the young church something of a respite from the fierce attacks that they might otherwise be facing. So Paul delights to take as much of it as he can in order to spare others. So Paul sees himself in this position to sacrificially, in a sense, draw the enemy's fire and take it on. And I think especially for ministers of the gospel, for elders of the church, Uh, For pastors, we are called to shepherd. We are called in in one way to shepherd in love with gentleness and kindness and peace. But there is a sense where the Bible reminds us in Acts 20 and so many other passages, uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, that give not only the qualifications and the character of one who's leading a church like Paul or uh, myself or the elders included, but it also gives reminders of that job of a shepherd to protect the flock, to take on the wolves, right? and to be that first line of defense, however you want to describe it. And I think it's just a reminder for those who are desiring that, to step into that or whatever, that that there is a sense that there is somewhat of a target on our backs to pray for your elders and your deacons, the leaders of the church, to pray for them, for they are most targeted, I could say. And it's hard to describe I guess, to you. In fact, I was having a conversation with somebody recently who was kind of stepping into leadership here at the church and they were describing this very thing but in different words, but they're basically saying, you know, it's almost as if like as soon as you step in to that point, it's like you get attacked, you know? You ever had that? And, and um, for me, I, I guess I, I even struggled talking about this because it seems like I, I want attention or something. And that's, it's, that's why this sermon is somewhat difficult to preach because I feel like we're talking about my own job here and my own pastor, but uh, I hope you understand where I'm coming from. 
But, but there is at times this target that we feel that we have, this burden that we bear on behalf of the church. Paul talks about this, how he, he um, struggles, but with the, with the burden for all the churches, he says, the weight that he holds. You know? And so he, he, he has this sense. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I want to, just <laughs> try to figure out how much I want to give into this. I mean, it, it's just one of those things that it's hard at times, right? It's, there is this target, there's this burden, there's this spiritual weight that I, I have trouble describing. The, the, the lying awake at night or the, that you all feel for your children and your kids, right? That you might feel like, oh, I don't know what's happening in that person's life and it's your own son or daughter, right? There is a sense that I, I, again, I'm new into all this. I've only been pastoring for six years. I'm not like this you know, seasoned veteran or something. So I'm still trying to grapple as to what this is like and how this works out every day. There is this sense at times, there's this spiritual weight that I feel for you that I, I can't really describe. And, I, and at times, I don't want to feel it. Can I be honest? I don't like it sometimes. You know. I, I've said to my wife sometimes in, in confidence, just, can someone else do this? You know? Can somebody else do this job? Because I can't do this right now. You know, have you ever felt that or you're walking with someone through the hardest moments in their life and, and you're walking with them and you love them and care for them or, or you see a path that someone's beginning to take and you're trying to warn them but they don't want to listen and it's like, how, how do you do that? And then yet all the while knowing that I'm a human being and I need help in pastoring too. I, I don't have it all figured out. So, so what I'm saying is when Paul says these words, I feel like I can resonate with him, but I can't imagine the pressure he must have been in in the early church and the establishing of all these things. I myself am surrounded by so many people who support me and help me all the time. And, and so it's, it's a blessing to think these things through. And, and so I guess I'm trying to say, trying to be authentic and real with you guys, but I, I, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I guess I'm saying God has blessed greatly and he is using and it is in his power that he sustains and supplies all the energy that we need. And in fact, Paul says that very thing. Uh, in fact, he says it in verse 29. We'll get to that in a moment. So this sense of, number one, that we need to be willing to suffer for it comes with the territory. A sense of suffering that Paul says, I am rejoicing on your behalf uh, because I'm suffering for you for the sake of the church. Of which, he says in verse 25, he has a sense of call. He has a sense of calling to proclaim the word. This is number two. He has to have a calling that God has commissioned him. Some of the translations might say that God has commissioned him as a servant of the gospel or according to the stewardship that God has given to him. God has called him to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take care of it, to proclaim the whole word of God, to make it fully known. And then he gets into this word of mystery that I'll explain in a moment. But the calling that has been placed on him, this was something talked to me a lot when I first started pastoring and preaching that basically like, you know, don't, don't get into this unless you really feel called to this, right? And um, I think it's one of those things that, that it, it is a, an important reminder. For in 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an elder or an overseer, he desires a good thing, a noble task. It is a good thing. But I, but I know that, why is it that you're wanting leadership? Why is it that you're wanting to pastor and to elder in a church? Why is it that you want to oversee? Is it for yourself attention and your position of power to seek and narcissistically draw attention to yourself all the time? Or are you seeking, as Paul describes himself, to be a servant and to be willing to go through hard things on others' behalf? And that's important to remind yourself because even in fact, 
Alistair Begg, I think, was preaching on this this week. I was struggling to understand a few of these passages, and I'm getting in my car and drive, and the radio comes on, and Alistair Begg is a fantastic preacher. He's preaching on this very passage. I was like, well, there you go. I'll just steal his sermon. No, I'm joking. Um, no, but it, it helped remind me of like, okay, so he's saying some of the same things I was saying. It was helpful for me, and it was encouraging to me um, as a young pastor. And so he was, he was saying, even in this, he said if he used to tell, and he was told, but he said basically, if you can avoid pastoral and elder ministry, do it. <laughs> if you can, I dare you, is basically what he was saying. And in fact, I had a conversation with one of the elders this week of saying of how he tried to avoid it for many years. Like, I can't do this, I can't do this, it's not for me. And God just kept pushing him into it, pushing him into it, and he's called and he's doing a fantastic job. It was just one of those sense of calling God commissions you and sends you and there was a time in my life that I'm like, I'm not sure if this is for me and yet it just was something I couldn't avoid. You know? Believe me, I tried, okay? And, uh, you know, and it's one of those things that it's almost as if, uh, even as J.C. Ryle, a bishop of England many years ago said in, in England, I think it was Liverpool, England, he said, I felt shut up to do nothing else for I found Without pastoring, I could do nothing else. <laughs> he was called into ministry and he felt he could not avoid it. And so there is this sense of, of calling and a desire within us that God commissions us and sends us and places us as God does in all authority as he is in charge of it all for he is the great shepherd. We are simply the under shepherds stewarding what he has set up and designed. It's not my church, it's his church, amen? Right? It is Jesus' church. And so we are reminded that, that we also, as we have to proclaim the word of God, as elders get up and shepherd you in prayer and share and teaching and others, as we pray on your behalf every week, we proclaim the word of God, the whole word of God, and as Hebrews 13 warns us that not many of us would become teachers because we will give an account for your souls. That I will give an account for every word that I speak up here. Everything that I, that I fully don't grasp and understand on my own, I hope that God humbly forgives, for I know he will. But it's a sense that I have a burden in this manner and in this way, commissioned by God to preach and teach. For we will, the word says in James even, that we will be judged with a greater strictness. And so we proclaim the word of God, the whole word of God. That's why I often will take a book and walk through it. I know other people preach in different ways, that's up to them, but for me, I've been called, I feel as if, to preach the whole counsel of God so that I cannot avoid certain passages. Do you know there's some passages I would just run to in Colossians and others I would just avoid because they're a little tough, you know? And so I, I, I don't feel comfortable just constantly preaching to you from my hobby horse of what I feel most comfortable. I feel challenged to present to you, as I think it is Romans says, the whole counsel of God, or maybe that's in Ephesians. The whole counsel of God. And, and then revealing to you what God has revealed to us, which is, as verse 26 says, the mystery there's that word mystery. I, I find that word pops up so much, actually. It's, a, it's striking how often mystery will come up in the scripture. The word mystery, we've talked about it several times here at this church. A mystery that he said in verse 26, hidden for ages, hidden for ages and for generations, but now is revealed to the saints. Is now revealed. So something that was hidden but now revealed this beautiful secret that's no longer a secret, but rather that's what I feel even in every time we reveal the revelation of God. The scripture is right before you, but as a minister of the gospel, we bring it to you and we say this is a mystery, but yet it's not one that's not meant to be known. 
but a secret and a mystery meant to be unfolded, like the apocalypse. The word apocalypse is not doom and destruction. The word means an unveiling. It's like you're pulling back the curtain and you're revealing and unveiling the truth that's behind. This mystery of the gospel, which was previously uh, unknown, now is being seen completely through God's grace to the Gentile people, he says. Look at this, it's extraordinary. He's worked through the Jewish people all of this time and the Hebrews and now the Gentiles are grafted in and now you and me like don't have to go to a temple and make sacrifices but we just come to church and and then what does he say the height and the riches and the glory of the mystery of the gospel is what you know what he says the riches of all of it I should just have you guys answer it until you find the question now verse 27 what does he say that the riches of the glory of this amazing mystery of the gospel the story of redemption which we read from Genesis till now the riches of all of that you know what that is Christ in you. Wow. Like, that's a, like again, you can, I, I did it. I've read through this book many, many times. Just read through, boom, go on to the next verse. Like, think about that. Christ in you. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. That's what he's saying. This is an incredible thing. If you think about the Old Testament and how they interacted with God in the tabernacle, in the temple, and through the people, through sacrifices, through this location where the Shekinah glory dwelt, and now uh, the Bible speaks of how the scripture uh, tells us that Jesus has come and the Spirit is here and Christ is in you, right here in this place. Christ is in you. That is mysteriously amazing, awesome, incredible. It's Christ in you, for you Gentiles here in Jaffrey and those who are meeting all of the world, all different tribes, languages, and nations, for this was the plan from the beginning. God told Abraham, in you, in your family, I will make the whole world, all nations, all peoples will be blessed through you. Isn't that incredible? It was the plan from the beginning, but now we see it unfold through Jesus Christ in ways that we didn't see before. It's extraordinary, it's a mystery, it's revealed. Christ in us, he indwells us and as he says in John, he makes his home with us. He dwells with us, right? Now not in a temple or a place but in our lives. His presence is experienced among his people. He makes his home with us and this not only is Christ in us, he makes his home with us but he gives us great hope So do you see that? It is Christ in you. Do you see that? And then it is your hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is God that makes his home with us and that gives us great hope that the glory of God, the power and the majesty of God has been poured out in us and has now, it is our hope that one day we will glorify him, that, that in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Wow. God will dwell with us, and this gives us great hope. And so then we have this aspect here that we look at, and I know uh, we'll go quickly through the last couple here. There is a passion to preach. And I know I just said to proclaim the word of God to make it fully known, to reveal the mystery that God has given us which is the Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's a calling and a passion to proclaim the word of God but then specifically he says in verse 28, and I don't know if the booth can put up Colossians 1:28 or not, uh, but if they could look at verse 28, we're gonna spend a little time on this. It says in Colossians 1.28 that him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone. 
Yeah, the word warning is this idea of um, proclaiming or preaching, this idea of even, uh, it's, it comes from the word nutheo, it's a, a word that means even counsel, counsel. Yeah, yeah, like I wanna go see a counselor, I want to be counseled, I'm seeking counsel. I am, the, in a sense, this word warning ultimately means that, that Paul is saying, I am here to proclaim him, Jesus, for Jesus is who we preach, Jesus is the center, the whole series is centered around Jesus is the center. I want this pulpit to focus on preaching to you Christ. Give them Christ, give them Christ. And so that is why you've come here for many years, you will probably hear messages that are repeated. I've heard you say that before, Pastor. Good, right? Isn't that, we need to be reminded. We need to hear Christ. Give them Christ. And so Paul says, him we proclaim. I give you Christ. But I do that in a way that I warn you and I teach you, he says. And so preaching is more than just let's have a nice chat, fireside chat. You know, let's saddle up here and chat about some things that I think you might, it's, it is that with this teaching. Let me give you something. But hey, let me also warn you because that's what a good counselor does. Counselor comes and says, hey, I'm going to admonish you here that this is not good. And, and I would recommend, I'm going to counsel you to see Christ as what is good and to pursue him wholeheartedly. And Paul does that. In fact, in Colossians 2, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one would delude you with plausible arguments. Apparently, in the Colossian church at that time, there were people trying to delude the church with plausible arguments that weren't true. You could say false teaching. And so Paul's writing this entire letter in order to counteract certain teachings that were drawing people astray, causing them to be tossed around, and saying that they were being deluded with things that sounded really good plausible arguments. So and then he says in verse eight of chapter two, see that no one takes you captive by certain philosophies or empty deceit and all this stuff. So he mentions this kind of sense of, of the preaching of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the truth involves both this counsel warning and also this amazing truth of teaching you to grow up in Christ. It's incredible. Love this. With all wisdom, he says, that comes from God. So there is, in a sense, in preaching, this, this sense of, of, of a positive and a negative. And I pray that, that I can find somehow a proper balance on that. I don't want you to feel as if you're being hit over the head with a hammer. For in fact, like we talked about earlier, I desire that you would come and find rest and peace for your souls. But there is, in a sense, of teaching that there is a heaven and God is gracious and merciful. But there is a stern warning that if you reject that gracious and merciful God, there is a hell. That is this sense of preaching, is it not? And I teach you on these things, and so I do the same thing for myself. And so number four, uh, as we move on from this idea of preaching, same thing though in verse 28. Him we proclaim, if you could bring that up again, yeah, they have it up there. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that what? That we may present the church and everyone here mature in Christ, mature in Christ. So this is uh, verse this is my fourth one for a job description here that it needs to have this long-term goal oriented. I think it was Eugene Peterson said it's long obedience in the same direction. Maybe you've heard that before. This is the journey of the Christian faith. It's not so much a flash in the pan, microwave Christianity, an extraordinary thing, and then just like I got my get out of jail free card and uh, I've got this you know, license to do whatever I want because I'm going to heaven maybe, right? You know, it's like, no, 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 there's a, there's a whole real like long-term journey here, right? It's not just this little card you get. 
And it's not as necessarily too that you're worried about losing that all the time, but it's this sense of, no, there's this journey that's involved. There's this maturation process. You could say microwave Christianity or crockpot Christianity. Does that work for you? you know? Or what is it nowadays? It's an instapot or something, right? It's quicker. Uh, but uh, grow up into these things that the minister is challenging and, and seeking to teach everyone, to warn everyone, and to present them mature when Christ returns. It's an incredible way to look at things. And I'll tell you at times that there's a lot of pressure on the elders and the church that you need to be doing more of this, you need to be doing less of that, you need to be doing more of this, and this is a, a great way to get more people here, and this is a great, you know, all these things. Everyone, you know what's incredible is sometimes just simplifying things that we're here to disciple you. It's not always about numbers, how many people, how many things, but it's so often just about maturation, the, the maturity and the growth and the long-term process that is involved in that, and that's an incredible thing. I think this was part of Paul's uh, methodology. That yes, he preached to thousands, but often he was working individually with people. And he saw himself in Ephesians 4, it says he, his job was to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building up the body until they would attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood, it says. To the measure and the stature and the fullness of God. There isn't just like this magic bullet that takes everything away and there's no longer any struggle or hardship. We just talked about that, but rather this sense of maturity, of growth, of long-term sanctification that is driven not by you, but through the power and the energy that God supplies, which is what he says in the next verse. But he also reminds us in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this. I've been just somehow arrived and there's no issues anymore. No, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but what does he say? I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brother, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, I love that. Press on like a race toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, let those who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold to what is true, what we have attained. This is a beautiful picture of the Christian life, the Christian walk, the Christian uh, marathon, you could say. There's so many different ways to describe it. He pressed on, don't quit, walk in the spirit. These things are, are ways that Paul uses. Even in Colossians 3, he talks about putting off and putting on of the old man. Uh, putting off of the old man, putting on the new man. And then he says, put on the new self in Colossians 3.10, which is being renewed. Currently, right now, there's a process, there's a tension between that. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing, that process which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image after his creator. And so this is the long-term goal-oriented work of a Christian minister. And then if you look at verse 29, maybe the booth could put up Colossians 1.29 is one of the verses we're gonna look here at the end to close. Uh, these last couple of passages here, but in verse 29, uh, Paul gets real, all right? He gets a little real with you. And he says, for this reason, this is all that I've been doing, I have been seeking to teach and seeking to warn and travel around the churches. He's in chains right now, suffering for the behalf of the church. He's revealed the mystery of God to the Gentiles, presented the gospel, preach and teach and go, go, go. And then he says, honestly, in verse 29, what does he say? For this, what does he say? I toil. One commentator said, um, you could use the word I slog. Is that helpful? <laughs> I slog. Even from Paul. Every day was rosy, hunky-dory. He felt at times that he was slogging along. Does he wake up like that? Oh, my goodness. I just gotta be faithful today. Be faithful to what God has called me to do today. 
There is the slog of ministry. And then he says, I slog, but what? Struggling is the next word he says. Struggling with it, and that word struggling is really cool because it actually brings up the Greek games. It is the word contending with. You could say it's wrestling. Have you ever watched wrestling? Two people struggling with each other, wrestling with something. I contend and struggle. So see, he's real, man. He's, I'm slogging along, I'm contending. Does he give up? No, I press on. I'm slogging through. Right now is hard for him. Absolutely, it's tough. But he presses on to the prize of the upward call of God. Those, this is the mature way of thinking. Not always looking for the quick fix, but the long-term growth and maturity. And so then he says, in Colossians 2, he even, he even says then I'm, uh, in Colossians 2, 1, he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He says that. Then he prays for them and he pours out his heart in a prayer in verses one through three of chapter two. But this reason is why he's struggling. And then in Colossians 4, he, chapter four, he says, Epaphras is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. So in Epaphras' prayers, he's struggling for the people on their behalf, and so there's this sense of a great struggle that he has. And yet, what's so cool about verse 29, go back to Colossians 1, 29, that, that for this I toil, I'm struggling. Does the verse end there? <laughs> this is what's, what I was literally talking about earlier. It's like, this is, this is what life is like. Paul shows us a wonderful example of it. For this I toil, struggling, with all my power, you know. <laughs> with my ability and amazingness because I'm the Apostle Paul, right, you know? No, he says, this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? His energy. It's about Christ, right? His energy that who? He powerfully works in me. Wow. I love that and that's very encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. The fact that we can recognize that it is through Christ's strength, it is through the Spirit's power that we find the ability and strength to slog and run and press on and keep on going because God supplies us with his energy. You know the Greek word there for energy is energy. <laughs> it's literally energy on. It's like what we get the word energy. It's literally energy, this sense of active influence, exertion, at other times it's translated working. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day, right? This work that's happening, this energy that he supplies us with that we don't know where it comes, the peace that passes all understanding, like where does this energy come from? It comes from God. In Ephesians 1 verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What's the immeasurable greatness and power? According to his energy, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ and raised him from the dead. That same power, that Christ, that energy that he worked in Christ to raise him from the dead, he's saying, is the energy that is powering you. You need to be Christ-powered. Do this on your own strength and you will falter. It, what, what, are you, what is your engine powered on? I know so much about engines, so I'm gonna give you all these illustrations. Now, but diesel-powered, gas-powered, electric-powered, what's the power there sourcing that? For the Christian, the person seeking to work into the ministry of God and the church and this fight that we're on, struggling not with, uh, pri but with principalities and powers above. Right, this is a war that we're in. This power does not come from me alone. It comes from Christ. Colossians 1.11, he, uh, he prays it for the people. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Paul then again says it again. 
or I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, I'm here to warn you, I'm teaching, I'm gonna present you mature in Christ and I am toiling on your behalf. And in a sense he's saying, I love you because Christ loves you because Christ is the center, right? Is that not what we've been talking about? I know it's so amazing about this chapter and this whole book. Christ is the center. We were reminded last week that Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. Christ is the starting point before the starting point. He's the starting point of your life. And then he's the sustaining power that allows you to keep on running. And then what's so neat about it is Christ is also the finish line. And he's our hope of glory. It is Christ who who is in us and it is the one to whom we run to. We are Christ power. Let us be that. Not a a program-driven church or uh, an outward program-driven church, but rather a people-centered church because we are a Christ-powered church. And his Holy Spirit is the power in which we walk. That is the aim and the goal, I think, of every Christian minister and every person who is seeking to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the person who must be willing to suffer for others. They have a sense of calling to proclaim the whole counsel of God. They have a passion to preach. They have a long-term goal-oriented. They're hardworking, determined, and persistent. They toil and they will not give up. And then they are Christ-powered in it all. That is the goal that we all seek and hope to aim. And, the, and then what I aim to try to do, and I think for every elder and deacon here, what, all, what we would all wholeheartedly say, yes, that is what our goal is. That is who we're trying to be. And Paul lays that out for all of us to learn today. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, we say those words so often. For we recognize the reality of faith in this moment right now. Lord, I believe in you, we sang earlier. The triune God, all it is that you represent, all that you mean for us, Lord. God, give us the power. Give us the energy we need today to continue on, to press on, and to praise your name. And as we said earlier, to rejoice, like to be happy, to rejoice in all, whatever state we find ourselves in. There's the secret of contentment. Thank you, God, for that. Give us that joy. Give us that hope. And thank you, God, for being with us in this moment, with us. And God, we close by singing to you and praising to you, praising you for your great mercy on our behalf, for you are good and worthy of all our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.